This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 20th of July. Today, we're discussing mankind's deep reliance on nature. Billions of people rely on wild species for food, for resources, and for livelihoods. And yet, over-exploitation of animal and plant species is placing human survival at risk, says a landmark report from the United Nations Science Advisory Panel for Biodiversity, known as IPBES. With us today to discuss the importance of wild species is report co-chair Dr. Marla Emery, a scientific advisor to the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Emery. It's my pleasure, Audrey. So before we begin, could you give us some examples of what wild species are and why they are so important to all of us? Well, yes. Uh, So we know that about 50,000 wild species are used regularly by people all over the world for food, medicine, energy, and other purposes. And so let's start by looking perhaps at fish. Um, wild fish from both oceans and freshwaters are really critical sources of protein for people around the world. Or trees that are growing in natural forests. So we could call these wild trees, if you will. So currently, wild trees are the major source of wood and wood products for purposes like construction, furniture, and aesthetics objects. And in fact, chances are pretty good that everyone listening to this podcast has at least one object made from a tree that grew in a natural forest around them right now, Um, whether that's the table that they eat their dinner at each evening or a picture frame or a cherished wood carving. Uh, And uh, approximately one in three people globally depends on fuel wood to cook their meals. We can also think about nature-based tourism as a use of wild species. So one that generally doesn't involve consuming the wild species or removing it from its habitat. So if you think about bird watching or photo safaris, for example, and we know that in 2018, wildlife watching of various types uh, contributed some US $120 billion to the global gross domestic product and supported nearly 22 million jobs. And those are just a few examples of wild species that people use and how they contribute. We know that we rely on some 50,000 wild species. Those are the most commonly and documented ones, but that's probably uh, an underestimate of the number of wild species that are used. 
some other figures that we know and that are documented in this in our IPBES assessment on sustainable use of wild species is that one in five people globally rely on wild species for income and food. And more than 10,000 wild species are known to be harvested only for food. An estimated 2.4 billion people, that's one in three, as I previously said, depend on fuel wood for cooking. And sustainable use of wild species is essential, really, to the identity and existence of many indigenous peoples and local communities globally. But the study uh, for which you were co-chair found that despite the immense value of these species to people, many of the species are in trouble. So just how serious is the crisis facing these species and nature in general? And could you give us some examples? Yes, that is really a profoundly important question. So given the importance of the uses of wild species that we've just talked about, their uh, long-term sustainability is crucial. Uh, And while there are many examples of sustainable uses of wild species, unfortunately, there are some very concerning examples of uses that are unsustainable and species that are in trouble. So, for example, trade in ornamental plants has increased very rapidly over the last 40 years. Now, much of that trade is in cultivated plants, but a substantial portion of it is not. So one example is wild orchids. Uh, They're harvested and traded from countries around the world. But in fact, all 29,000 species of orchids are listed by the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna in Florida, which is commonly known as CITES. And that's 79% of all the species that are listed by CITES are wild orchids. So paradoxically, Cultivation may actually drive up the price of some wild species by giving those wild specimens greater prestige than the cultivated specimens, and thereby creating an incentive for illegal harvesting. And wild ginseng is a prime example of that phenomenon. So Pangolin is another example of a wild species that is used by humans, but is really in trouble. Pangolins are the most heavily traded wild mammal in the world, and they're used for both meat and medicinal purposes. There are four species of pangolins in Asia and four species in Africa. And in 2016, CITES noted that the threat status to all of those species of pangolin had risen uh, due in good part to increases in both domestic and international trade. And those are just a few examples, but uh, among the most uh, visible globally. And where does climate change fit in here in terms of impacts on key species that humanity relies on? It's not only human uses that are putting many species that people depend on at risk. Um, Other important factors that put wild species and nature as a whole at risk include changes in uses of land and sea and pollution and invasive alien species and, as you importantly highlight here, climate change. But I am right now in Europe where climate change is driving an unprecedented heat wave which is in turn driving massive wildfires. 
in Spain, in Portugal, in France. And those wildfires have to date, and they continue burning, burned thousands of hectares of land. And as they do that, they're eliminating for quite some time important habitat and populations of wild species in them. So another consequence of climate change that we can both observe today and is predicted to accelerate and increase by models uh, is many species moving poleward. So for example, as ocean waters warm in higher latitudes, many species of fish are moving northward in the Northern hemisphere and southward in the Southern hemisphere. That might seem like good news in some places, but this is also likely to result in replacement of many of the species that are currently in those places and have local economic and cultural importance. And the consequences of climate change for wild species and their importance to, to people go on from there. So Dr. Emery, we've talked a bit about the impacts of climate change on nature and how the trade in wild species, which is worth about US $200 billion a year, is decimating nature. Could you share a bit more about how these threats are interacting? Are we facing a situation of like death by a thousand cuts? That's a, a very vivid way of putting it. And uh, I think that I think there's reason for hope at the same time that we clearly must take action in order to make unsustainable uses of wild species sustainable and to address these additional threats. So the ITBES global assessment on the status of biodiversity uh, identified that the three largest contributors to extinction of wild species um, are land use change, climate change, and human use. And we can and we should take action on all of those things. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, let's turn to a more hopeful picture. So, Dr. Emery, is it possible to change our relationship with nature and use species sustainably? And are there already good examples of this? Um, there is reason to be hopeful. Um, and in fact, a key finding of the IPBES assessment of sustainable use of wild species is that there are examples of sustainable uses of wild species around the world. And supporting and learning from those existing sustainable uses offers a pathway to promoting and enhancing sustainable uses. And there are also really excellent examples of previously unsustainable uses of wild species that have been restored to sustainability. So again, let's, let's think about fishing and some examples from fishing. So if you've ever eaten sashimi, you've probably eaten bluefin tuna. Atlantic bluefin tuna was sustainably harvested for, oh, a couple millennia by traditional fisheries. But then in the 1980s, there was a rise in the global market for sashimi, and that led to a very sharp increase in the value of that fish and a corresponding expansion of the international fishing fleet to catch it. By the 1990s and the early 2000s, bluefin tuna was overexploited 
and included a substantial problem of illegal catch. So prompted by public opinion, a first plan to rebuild bluefin tuna stocks was implemented in 2007 and reinforced in subsequent years. Measures of the final Atlantic bluefin tuna rebuilding plan included things like reducing the length of the fishing season, increasing the minimum size of the catch, reductions in annual quotas, and new measures to monitor and control fishing activities. And in fact, these measures have been so successful that Atlantic bluefin tuna is now fished at biologically sustainable levels. That's a terrific model for us to apply to all sorts of wild species that are traded. Their trade is unsustainable at present times, but we see that there are ways to make that large-scale global trade sustainable. Now, looking at a smaller scale, many small-scale fisheries, especially coastal fisheries and inland fisheries, are currently unsustainable. A particular case that offers hope here um, occurs on the inland waters in the Amazon. There is a really extraordinary fish called the piraruku. The piraruku gets as big as an adult human man. They're, they're just really gigantic fish. And they've been important parts of Amazonian culture and economy since at least the 16th century. But the introduction of modern technologies in the second half of the 20th century rapidly resulted in overfishing of Piraruco. Catch the common pattern here? So after a sharp decline in populations of Piraruco, in about 1998, a series of small river communities decided that Piraruco was really important to them and they were going to take actions to change this. So they implemented community-based management programs. They adopted a governance system that was based on local management committees with the capacity, then those committees had the capacity to approve and enforce rules. Those rules were based on the local knowledge of fishermen. And that local management committee also sought uh, to and, and made sure that the benefits of fishing for Piraruku were equitably distributed within the communities where this is important. And in addition to providing their very important traditional knowledge, fishermen were also empowered to protect fishing grounds and they submitted annual management plans to government authorities. Local scientific projects involving biologists and ecologists then brought, came in and were invited in actually by local communities and in cooperation with local communities, they um, created important information on Piraruku biology and ecology, as well as the technical, social, and economic aspects of this fishery. So after two decades, these efforts have paid off in terms of now sustainable use of Piraruku that's generating positive social and economic and ecological benefits for local communities. And of course, many indigenous peoples all around the world have stewarded land and engaged in sustainable uses of wild species for millennia. 
And their practices can be important sources of information and models for all of us. Now, we've talked about uh, just now some very successful examples of species that have been brought back from the brink. But on a larger scale, what are the best solutions that can help uh, rebalance nature? For example, such as setting aside larger protected areas on land uh, and the oceans. Great and obviously critical question. So again, the IPBES assessment on sustainable use of wild species has identified seven key elements that support sustainable use of wild species, whether that is inside or outside of protected areas. And, and those elements include inclusive and participatory decision-making, such as the example of the Piraruku, uh, ensuring equitable distribution of the costs and the benefits from uses of wild species, and very importantly, policies that are tailored to the local, social, and ecological context. So what works in one place will not necessarily work in another place. In particularly, if we think about where a species is at the limits of its range versus where a species is right dead center in the middle of the habitat and the climatic conditions that favor its survival and, and thriving. We need different kinds of approaches in those two different kinds of places. Also, again, as illustrated by the Piraruku case, we need to be drawing on multiple forms of knowledge. So we need to be drawing on both science, the best science that we have available to us, and we need to be continuing to produce new science, but we also need to be drawing on indigenous and local knowledge. From If we, we think about 50,000 species in use, and we do not have the science for many of those species, in many cases, there is a wealth of rich local and indigenous knowledge about those species that we need to be drawing on, always with the free, prior, and informed consent of the communities whose knowledge is being used. Another important finding is there are lots of very promising examples globally in which scientists and indigenous and local communities are coming together and they're co-producing knowledge. And that co-produced knowledge is producing some very good outcomes. We also find that we need to adopt a rights-based approach to sustainable use of wild species so that people have a sense of security about their tenure. And that sense of security about their tenure provides a motivation to be sure that it's sustainable into the future so that you can not only use it today, but your children and your grandchildren can also benefit from it tomorrow. Careful monitoring of both the social and the ecological dimensions of wild species use is essential. The world is dynamic and climate change is making it only more dynamic. So what works today may not work tomorrow. We need to be prepared to adapt and change the ways that we're using wild species, the ways that we're harvesting wild species in order to keep that sustainable in this dynamic and changing world. And in order to do that, we need to create and support really robust institutions for creating and enforcing rules. 
it's both customary institutions and formal statutory institutions. And in the IPBES assessment on sustainable use of wild species, we also suggest that at a very fundamental level, we can begin by realizing that humans are a part of nature. They're not separate from nature. And humanity cannot exist apart from nature. So understanding that humanity is a part of nature will lay the foundation for respectful and sustainable relationships. And that's amply demonstrated by the traditional practices and the sustainable uses of wild species by many, not all, but many indigenous peoples and local communities around the world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Emery. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation to speak to you and your listeners. Thank you very much. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.